Qatar is not the first country to have discovered that winning the right to host a global sporting event is a mixed blessing. On one hand, the whole world pays attention to you. On the other hand, the whole world pays attention to you. On current form, Qatar may be wondering if hosting the 2022 World Cup has been worth the trouble. Qatar, previously known principally for Qatar Airways and Al Jazeera, two correctly admired brands, has found itself turned into a byword for institutionalized homophobia and lamentable labor relations. Coverage of the tournament has been generally begrudging. In the UK, the BBC loftily refused to broadcast the opening ceremony. Qatar has some reason to feel aggrieved by the intensity, even the sanctimony, of the criticism it has attracted. Worse places are permitted to host global sporting events all the time. This year's Formula One calendar may have skipped 2018 World Cup host Russia and 2022 Winter Olympics host China, but still raced in Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, Azerbaijan and Hungary, none of whose governments are paragons of liberal virtue. England's cricket team just toured Pakistan, where homosexuality is illegal, as is blasphemy. Has Qatar really got what it wanted from this? Is there an argument that hosting the World Cup has forced Qatar towards reform? And what's it like to be one of the actual players trying to represent their country, stay true to themselves, and still concentrate on the game? This is the Foreign Desk. The winner to organise... The 2022 FIFA World Cup is Qatar. When people say, how did you win the World Cup? You know, the simplest answer, and I, and I assure you and I promise you, it is not said in any way with any arrogance. We were the best bid. Before the tournament even began, FIFA warned it teams to focus squarely on soccer. In this country, freedom of the press is not guaranteed. Neither is freedom of expression. This is not a player's decision. Imagine going on the pitch with a clear yellow card to start with, that is not possible. Aldersaruri! The golden boy of Saudi Arabian football has put his nation ahead against Argentina. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Joining me first from Sydney is Craig Foster. Craig is a sports commentator, human rights activist and chair of the Australian Republic movement. But before all that, he was a football player and he played 29 times for Australia's national men's team, the Socceroos, once as captain. Uh, Craig, first of all, I wanted to get some sort of insight into how an event feels like this for players, even before we get into the political considerations. You pulled on a lot of different shirts during your time as a footballer, Portsmouth, Crystal Palace, Adelaide City, Sydney United, among others. Did pulling on the Australia shirt, especially at an international tournament, feel different? Oh, without doubt, players rightly feel a tremendous amount of pride and pressure, of course, in representing their own countries. It's very different when people come together from all the disparate clubs around the world or very largely across Europe with all of the top national teams in the world and then represent their own people back home, represent their families, represent their nation, represent the history of their nation. So many of them, whether they're World Cup winners or nations who have storied history, they'll feel a deep sense of pride in carrying that legacy. So it's very, very different when people 
feel as though they're representing their own cultures, their own national identities, and, you know, continuing those stories. Because one of the things we're talking about in this episode is what happens when players, especially representing the world's democracies, find themselves projecting those countries in not necessarily agreeable or hospitable environments. And of course, you played for Australia at the FIFA Confederations Cup in 1997, which was held in Saudi Arabia. If you go back 25 years to that, was there ever any talk among the players or among Australian football as to whether Australia should be going at all? and how they should handle it when they got there? Not really at all, no. So it shows you how much the sporting world has changed. And in particular, in recent years, once FIFA implemented a human rights policy, and I think that's what has been the central focus of Qatar 2022, is that now players are or at least should and probably have to be educated on you know the international rights-based framework. And so we see, for instance, the Australian national team spending around 18 months to two years of being educated through their players union in particular on you know what the human rights issues are in Qatar about you know the concepts that 25 years ago athletes were barely alive to Hmm. so if you're talking about you know the great moments of athlete advocacy um, around perhaps apartheid in South Africa or the black power salute the human rights salute for example you usually found that those athletes were somehow party to or embedded in civil society organizations and therefore they were taking advice on how they should act or regarding boycotts of the like from organizations of people largely outside of sport whereas today the entire human rights movement has for the first time become embedded inside the global sport of football itself Mm. and therefore the act of being a player today is very different to what it used to be. What have you made so far of the way that players have either engaged with or protested against conditions in Qatar? There was, of course, that test case very early on when captains who said they were going to wear the rainbow armband had it decided for them by their football associations that they weren't. So the overall response has been horrifically poor. And that's not surprising because the game of football, like the Olympics and other global sporting organizations are deeply political and make decisions based on both politics and particularly economics rather than on the concepts of basic human rights or support for vulnerable and affected groups either in their sport or in this case with mega sporting events. So, you know, there's been immense pressure applied through federations who themselves are deeply politicized. They're always very close Mm. to their own governments, for example. So those countries we've seen who have very uh, strong ties with Qatar are countries where the football federations will be trying to silence the voices of the athletes. In other countries, we see pressures coming because of the amount of finance and ownership of clubs in Qatar, of, you know, the political and soft power relationships that Qatar and other areas in the Gulf, countries in the Gulf have been able to develop through the game. So federations in particular have been extremely weak, but FIFA itself has been shockingly bad. The reason being is because they actually have a human rights policy. So, Mm. you know, this burden should never have fallen on the athletes. It has because FIFA itself has abrogated its own responsibility.
On that subject, and from your engagements with modern day players, you you were talking earlier about how 25 years ago, none of this stuff really registered with players, still less the idea that it might be their place to do anything about it. Obviously, 25 years later, footballers with a global reach have huge platforms and huge influence. Mm. But do they embrace the idea that they need to take this stuff on or are there those of them who are quite resentful of it and think, well, none of this is actually my job? That's largely the attitude that we've seen. So, for example, the world's greatest players, Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo, have said nothing. The world's greatest legends, David Beckham, Andrea Pirlo, that we see all across the advertisements for Qatar, have gone to Qatar said nothing and in fact very often argued and propagated the same arguments that Gianni Infantino, the FIFA president, and the Qatar Supreme Committee have given themselves. In fact, we saw John Barnes, the great Liverpool and England Mm. legend, you know, talking the very same rhetoric that we've heard out of Infantino. So the game of football is not well served generally by players and particularly former legends of the game speaking out for social justice. I think that perhaps one factor is the globalised nature of the game and in different areas of the world there are different views of these things, whereas, for example, NBA or even NFL players Mm. and the like who are close to civil society and civil rights organisations in the US, for example, we see very different attitudes or Lewis Hamilton or even Naomi Osaka. You mentioned there are a few athletes who have taken individual stands and you referred earlier to the Black Power salute at the 68 Mexico Mm -hmm. City Games. Would it have made a difference in this particular instance, you think, if like a genuine modern legend of the game and talking about a Ronaldo or an Mbappe or a Messi had just announced before this World Cup or perhaps even before the Russia World Cup in 2018, I'm not going. Well, yes, it would have made a huge difference. I'm not sure that that is necessarily the path they would need to take. Mm. All they need to do is to have the discussion in a very different way. So the great disappointment from my perspective is that five years ago, FIFA implemented the first human rights policy in all of global sport. That was the moment in demonstrating an actual commitment to that human rights policy, which has been completely absent. That was the moment when football should really have brought its greatest players in the world and certainly its ambassadors on the panels that FIFA so much love to put together. You know, all of these players from all corners of the world who the fans so much look up to, the legends, they bring them together in what they call the FIFA legends. Those players are paid money from FIFA to promote the tournaments and are largely captured and silenced through that process. But what FIFA could and should have done was sat them down and said, okay, guys, this is a new era. We have a human rights policy here and everyone needs to understand this because we need to have this discussion about Qatar that's looming in a couple of years' time in a sensitive, respectful manner in what is a very, very complex set of issues. And so the athletes should have been educated in the same way that the Players' Union in Australia, for example, of which I'm proudly a former chair, spent the last two years educating the Australian players. And this is why you saw the Australian national team issue a statement Mm. and a video which was very strong, very sensitive, very respectful. There are universal values that should define football. Values such as respect, dignity, trust, and courage. When we represent our nation, we aspire to embody these values. But strong in relation to the actual provisions in the human rights 
conventions which call for the decriminalization non-discrimination of the lgbti community and particularly remedy which is one of the core principles of human rights so all of these legends could have been sat down taken through those provisions and today we would see a very different discussion occurring around qatar we would see one where legends of the game are saying that you know of course human rights abuse happens all around the world nevertheless these are universal rights that everyone has these are the things that you know football needs to stand for and qatar need to understand like saudi arabia who want to host in 2030 or any of our own countries that these rights are important to us as legends of the game that they're important to the game of football that they're fundamental to football progressing the rights of people all around the world and whilst we respect qatar and any other country you know, these are non-negotiable rights that we're here to stand up for. Well, on that thought then, looking ahead, and you mentioned there the Saudi bid for the 2030 World Cup, should FIFA and arguably other international sporting organisations all adopt a policy of your country either abides by certain standards or you are not eligible to bid? I mean, in extremists, could that even be applied to who is allowed to compete? We have seen, for example, before this World Cup, Russia slung out of the tournament for obvious reasons. The problem with, you know, the implementation of these human rights provisions has been the discretionary nature of their application. So, for example, Gianni Infantino will say, well, everyone can protest for Ukraine against Russia on the field of play, or they can take the knee for Black Lives Matter, for example, Mm. because that's become socially acceptable and doesn't particularly offend any particular partner or sponsor at that point in time. However, we can't speak up for LGBTI. We're not going to stand for, you know, the rainbow flags and hats and other things. And we're certainly not going to talk about decriminalization of that community, both in Qatar and all around the world. So these are incredible opportunities to have the discussions in an appropriate way, rather than then polluting the whole discussion by trying to turn it into a West v East or attacks on the culture of Qatar. It, of course, has nothing to do with the culture of any country. It's about the universal rights, which are ascribed in all of the various human rights conventions. So that has to be the way forward. And those human rights provisions now, for the first time in the 2026 World Cup bidding process, are actually written into the hosting agreements. So the answer is yes. There was a human rights due diligence carried out on the Canadian, Mexican and USA bid, and that's online for everyone to read. And so in future, this is very much part of the discussion. But the problem that I have is I think that's a particular reason why Gianni Infantino is not willing and is not seeking to abide by those provisions. And in fact, seeking in his discussions and in his public commentary and his monologues to undermine the very Mm. concept of football abiding by human rights is because I think he understands that that's going to put Saudi Arabia and North Korea and and even China in positions where he has to have a complex and quite difficult and challenging discussions with them when they decide that they want to sport wash through the game of football. That's the future. But the problem is at the moment, you know, you've got administrators in football who aren't competent to speak about these issues effectively, sensitively and respectfully, but always very firm to the international human rights framework. Craig Foster, thank you for joining us. That was the human rights activist, sports commentator and former Socceroos player, Craig Foster. 
The stakes Craig mentioned are raised further still at a World Cup, perhaps especially when your country has never appeared at one before. Our next guest had the daunting task of keeping goal when Trinidad and Tobago made their World Cup debut in 2006. Shaka Hislop, now a commentator with ESPN. Shaka, I'd be interested in hearing your insights as well into what a World Cup is like as a player. Uh, Like Craig, you also played for several well-known clubs with proud histories, uh, Portsmouth, Newcastle United, West Ham United. But did playing for Trinidad and Tobago feel different? Yes, it did. It was the the most significant thing I did in in my professional playing career. I grew up watching the World Cup, knowing everything that it it stood for. Trinidad and Tobago had come close to qualifying in 1973. I I was only four years old at the time. I do remember us stumbling at the final hurdle in 1989, losing at home to the US. I never thought that I'd see Trinidad and Tobago qualify for a World Cup, let alone my participating in it. It was and remains the highlight of my own playing career. With all that at stake, did you feel under more or less pressure than you would have at a club side? Because as you say, you're representing this country on the world stage in a way that it never has been before. And you know, just from purely footballing terms, you're going to be very, very hard pushed to get any kind of result out of the group. The pressure before that first game with Sweden, and as you observe, you did get that fantastic nil-all draw out of it. But what did it feel like in the immediate minutes before you went onto the field? Well, you make an effort, actually, to try to make it feel as like every other game. You treat it as, as 90 minutes, and you try not to let the moment get the better of you. Sure, your warm-up routines are the same. Your pre-match meal is the same. Everything about the approach is you try to keep as routine and as familiar as possible, and you take the game as such. Once your first whistle goes, then it's just about playing the game. It's just about the opponent and your own team tactics and and your own individual performance. One thing you didn't have to deal with, of course, was the concerns attached to playing in the World Cup in a host nation about which there was any great controversy about its ethics, its treatment of various minorities, its treatment of the people who built the stadiums. If you'd been faced with playing a World Cup in Qatar or indeed in Russia, do you think you might have felt differently about it? No, I, I wouldn't have felt differently about it at all. Certainly not from a Trinidad Tobago perspective. I've always used my platform as a footballer, wherever I've been, to advocate for equality. I'm the founding patron, honorary president, and, and current interim board chair show racism, the Red Card, the UK's largest anti-racism charity. That we, we started that 27 years ago. I was a player at Newcastle United. So it's not something advocating for, for equality is not something that's foreign to me. It's something I've done my entire career. Doing it at the World Cup stage would have been no different to how I'd applied myself and the privilege of being a professional footballer throughout my entire career. My one big issue around a lot of sport activism, and in this instance, footballer activism, is that all the pressure is put on the players. The expectation is on, on the players to do something in an effort to raise awareness, to address whatever issues. It shouldn't be solely on the players to Mm. do that. Around a lot of the controversy with this World Cup, I think a lot of both the criticism and defences have been misplaced. I don't think anybody has addressed the real overarching long-term issues with Qatar hosting a World Cup. 
I don't feel those who have come to Qatar's defense, and sometimes validly so, again, have addressed some of the major issues that may result in Qatar's hosting and, and some of their position. But do you have faith that football itself can be an engine of progress, that it can demonstrate such values as meritocracy and inclusivity? Absolutely. I think football is a perfect vehicle to address and and be an example in so many of those circumstances. I always say, where else can a young man from Trinidad and Tobago, as I was, sitting in a dressing room five feet away from players from up and down the United Kingdom, five feet away from players in all four corners of the earth, quite literally. We had players from Norway, from Georgia, from Greece, from Colombia. We go out onto the field together. When we win, we celebrate together. When we lose, we go back out to the training ground on, on Monday and work to put that right. There's no better example to how our humanity, how our communities and our societies work best. So I, I firmly believe that football is without question, especially in its position as the globe's most popular sport, is uniquely positioned to address and be an example to so many of those issues. Do you think that realisation is more present in this generation of footballers than it was perhaps in your generation of footballers? We've seen the England team at this tournament still taking the knee as a gesture of support for Black Lives Matter. The players individually and collectively seem much more engaged with matters outside football than players did 20, 30 years ago. Yes, they are. And the simple answer to that question is, if I see further, I stand on the shoulder of giants. I recognize exactly what this generation and how this generation can continue to impact and move those conversations forward, move those conversations meaningly forward. But you also recognize the role that my generation played. I will always credit players like Viv Anderson, like Laurie Cunningham, like so many other Black players before me. I did an interview with Luther Blissett last year for their example and for their resilience in enduring and standing up in the face of the most horrific racist abuse. Without their stature and their status, I could not recognize a a career as a professional footballer, as a black man. I had to pay that forward. And and that was, was why I felt being involved and getting other players involved in insurance and red card was the ideal way to do that. And we did the best that we could with the tools that we had at the time. And we've continued to move that conversation forward. Shaka Hislop, thank you for joining us. That was the former Trinidad and Tobago goalkeeper, Shaka Hislop. And even former players have been drawn into the ethical imbroglios surrounding the Qatar World Cup. Laura McAllister, former captain of Wales's women's football team, was confronted by stadium security for attempting to wear a rainbow-striped hat. They just told me and others who were ahead of us in the queue to remove our rainbow bucket hats. They didn't actually explain why. And I did ask several times what was the reason for having to take the hat off. And the uh, female security guard said, first of all, regulation. And then when I said which regulation, they repeated regulation. And then eventually one of their, I assume, supervisors who had been standing a bit further away came up and just insisted again that we took the hats off. But we certainly didn't get any explanation as to why we needed to take the hats off. It was a surprise, you know, I have to say. I I literally hadn't thought about it until someone ahead of us in the queue said that they'd had these problems actually getting through the security. 
But I think what we've got to remember in all of this is that this is a FIFA World Cup, you know, not a Qatar World Cup. It's a FIFA World Cup held in Qatar. And FIFA's line on this has been that everyone is welcome and that it's a World Cup for everybody, that it's inclusive and so on. And clearly they weren't able to enforce that in any shape or form in terms of behaviour of local officials. And I think that's pretty scandalous. The rainbow armbands, which you mentioned, became a flashpoint just before kickoff. Several captains of the competing teams had signalled their intention to wear them as their captain's armband. These were the, the one love armbands. The Football Associations of England, Wales and others all buckled pretty quickly when it was suggested that those might incur a yellow card. Obviously, you have represented Wales at football yourself and you, you would have a player's perspective of this. What do you think? Should the players have just stood up and said, I'm going to wear the armband and the referee can do his worst? Well, I think we just have to be a bit careful because the timing was engineered, in my opinion, very deliberately to put the greatest pressure on the players at a time when they could least afford to focus on anything other than football. And I mean, remember, this came to England first because their game was earlier than ours on the Monday. We're talking about hours before kickoff. It really you know, shouldn't happen that players are put in that invidious position where they're having to make a decision. Whether the decision is right or wrong is not something I can comment on because I, don't, I really don't think this should have happened at the time it happened. If this had happened a week before, then the players could have had a meeting, they could have discussed the issue and come to some conclusion about what they wanted to do. But I think it was very deliberately put on to the players just hours before kickoff. So there was no chance of consultation as a group. There was no chance of the captains of what we, I think we can fairly call progressive national associations getting together to see if we could have a collective position on this. And I think that's really unfortunate, but I'm afraid very deliberate. So, you know, the last thing we want to do is see a player punished for something that isn't anything to do with the field of play and play on that pitch. And that's what FIFA were threatening. I mean, I believe, I obviously wasn't there, but I believe they were told that they would face sanctions of a yellow card and more. Now, that's a very difficult position to put a player in. You know, he's about to represent his country, in our case, for the first time in 64 years and asking them to venture into the unknown, really. Now, I appreciate people might say, yes, they should have and they should have taken the punishment. But I wonder if people would have felt the same had that punishment been an immediate red card for Gareth Bale or for Harry Kane. We can argue the pros and cons of it, and I think there are pros and cons of it, but the reality is this should never have happened in the way it did. That was former Wales captain Laura McAllister. You are listening to The Foreign Desk. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. I'm joined now by Dr Paul Michael Brannigan, Senior Lecturer in Sport Management and Policy at Manchester Metropolitan University. Paul is also the author of Qatar and the 2022 FIFA World Cup, Politics, Controversy, Change. Uh, Paul, first of all, let's go back a bit. Why did Qatar want to host the World Cup in the first place? Well, I think it's a great question, Andrew. And I think the key thing there is if you have to really look at the regional sort of politics of Qatar. So Qatar is a small state in what historically has been quite a hostile region of the world. So one of the key things that Qatar's looked to do is two things. The first is overcome its invisibility on the world stage, number one. And number two is shore up its national safety and security. And this is really where the World Cup has really built into this. Qatar have been looking for a mechanism 
through which to promote itself on the global stage. Now, apart from a World Cup or Olympic Games, there's not really much else that can do that in the way these events can with their billions and billions of audience numbers, etc. So the World Cup really for Qatar has been about promoting itself on the world stage, number one. But number two, you know, really showcasing its right to sovereign independence and in doing so to shore up its national security. Clearly, it's given Qatar a greater profile on the world stage than it had before the World Cup began or indeed before it was announced that Qatar would be hosting it. But how do you think it is going for them as a soft power ploy in creating a favourable image of Qatar? Because it's occurred to me more than once amid all the criticism that they've had over the last few weeks in particular that whereas people have criticised countries like China and Russia, which have hosted high profile international tournaments in recent years. People know other things about China and Russia other than the shortcomings of their present governments. Whereas, as you were just sort of saying there, give or take its airline and Al Jazeera, nobody really knows very much about Qatar. Yeah, and I think this is, this is really key because I think what Qatar and the 2022 Cup remind us of is the inherent dangers associated with, first of all, raising international awareness of yourself, so trying to gain soft power, but also really using sport mega events in order to achieve such an outcome. So let's take Qatar's neighbour, the UAE, for example. It's hosted recently the Expo, arguably the largest non-sporting event there is on the planet, yet it hasn't received the kind of scrutiny that Qatar has around the World Cup. And we see this all the time. It's these countries that try to host these major sports events tend to actually get the brunt of international criticism. And as you alluded to right there, you know, there's a real irony here. Qatar's looked to use the World Cup to promote a positive image of itself on the global stage. But in doing so, the irony really here is that actually what it's done is potentially damage its image and actually raise awareness of some of its issues at home related to human rights abuses, accusations of corruption, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think the Qataris will have been genuinely surprised by the criticisms they've received, especially in the days just before it kicked off and indeed since? I can categorically tell you, Andrew, yes, they were shocked because I've asked them this question. I've sat with them and they've, they've told me this. So, look, I mean, I think that they certainly weren't naive. Any host that hosts the Olympic Games or a World Cup or an event like this is going to get some sort of international scrutiny. They've certainly been surprised by the level at which Qatar has been scrutinised globally by such a sort of wide range of global actors. And I put that down to really, I think, the world's shock that Qatar was awarded this tournament, you know, and bearing in mind it beat off competition for the likes of the UK, Japan, Australia, and the US. These are countries with a much richer football pedigree. So I think a lot of it is down to surprise. But yes, certainly the Qataris were surprised the level of scrutiny they've received. In particular, there's been scrutiny of the treatment of the many, many migrant workers who built these fabulous stadiums that the football is taking place in. There are a lot of figures doing the rounds about supposed deaths and injuries among those workers. What do we actually know for certain about that? Well, I think we know for certain that there have been serious you know, issues in Qatar, and this is certainly something that Qatar has admitted to in the past you know there's a lot of work 
that has taken place, but still an awful lot of work that needs to continue taking place in terms of improving the living and working conditions, particularly for uh, expatriate workers working within the construction industry. I don't think we know the exact figure of how many fatalities, very sad fatalities we've had on World Cup related infrastructure, because normally Qatar presents or they class World Cup related infrastructure as anything to do with the World Cups, not just stadiums, but it might be, for example, transport or whatever else. And obviously, we don't know how many actually get reported either. So I don't think we have a really clear understanding of exactly how many people have, have sadly died. What we do know for certain is there are issues. Qatar has continued working to try and rectify these issues, but there's a lot more work that needs to take place in, in regards to the human rights of expatriate workers in Qatar. Is there any hope that the scrutiny it has attracted might have improved the lot of migrant workers in Qatar in the long term? I think it actually goes beyond that. And I think, yes, I mean, I think what we've tended to see, I think it's it's you know quite right that these hosts that want to host the major World Cup or Olympic Games, you know, they should really be meeting certain criteria. And I don't think Qatar really met the right kind of criteria in many people's eyes. So what's now happened is, of course, you know, the scrutiny has hopefully led to sustainable change. I can say it has led to some change. I would obviously can't say whether that will be sustainable beyond the World Cup. I really hope that that change continues and the, you know, the conditions for migrant workers continues to improve. We will have to wait and see. But what I like to think of one legacy here is that in future, these hosts or any host that actually bid for an Olympic Games or a World Cup, that they're more, you know, sort of social, political, cultural issues are taken in consideration. And that it's a much more of a stronger discussion point moving forward that, you know, if you're going to have the privilege of hosting these events, then you really need to have your house in order. So I hope that's a long term legacy for other countries. Paul Michael Brannigan, thank you for joining us. That was Dr. Paul Michael Brannigan of Manchester Metropolitan University. His book, Qatar and the 2022 FIFA World Cup, is available now in hardback. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. Joining me finally from Qatar for a look at the tournament up close is Dr. Daniel Reicher, visiting associate professor at Georgetown University, Qatar, where he leads a research initiative on this year's World Cup. Daniel, first of all, measured against what you were expecting Qatar's World Cup to be like, has it been any different? (laughs) I'm positively surprised. I was a bit concerned about the logistics. This is a country with less than 3 million people, and more than 1 million people came. And it's more like an Olympic Games than a World Cup because everything is more or less in one city, although technically it's different cities. So, no, the logistics were really good. I went to 30 matches. I went to most matches by public transportation. Everything worked pretty well, so I'm positively surprised. And what about the crowds themselves? Because it's a very different kind of World Cup, partly for the reasons that you mentioned, but also it's happening in the Middle East. There is presumably less alcohol fueling the fan culture. Has it been a different kind of football event in that respect? I have to admit, as a German who who loves drinking beer, that I think banning the alcohol from the stadiums was good because the atmosphere was peaceful and particularly when going in public transportation with fans from different teams, uh, there were no tensions. But, you know, Qatar is not a dry country. There is uh, Mm. alcohol available. And for us who live here, there is a liquor store. You need a license for that. 
but there were fan zones where you could buy drinks. And I also went there with my friends who visited me. So I think everybody who wanted to drink was able to drink, just not in the stadium. There's been a lot of attention paid, obviously, to a few confrontations between some fans and stadium security, a certain amount of paranoia about people wearing rainbow-striped hats and so forth. Has that been something you've seen a lot of, or were those the sort of attention-attracting exceptions to the rule? Well, I mainly saw this on social media that people were posting who wanted to advocate, for example, solidarity with the protesters in Iran, that they were rejected stadium entrance or had to give away banners. So, but I just read that on social media. I didn't witness any critical situation by myself. What, of course, was visible was a lot of display of support with the Palestinian cause. So I think in every match you could see lots of Palestinian flags. Obviously, Qatar has come in for a lot of criticism over its human rights record and various other things as this World Cup has gone on. Have any of those criticisms been reflected in local media? Is the argument about Qatar as a legitimate World Cup venue, is it filtering through to Qatar at all? I think the general sentiment is that the criticism is unfair and that it's not recognized that a small country is capable of hosting such a big event and that there have also been domestic political changes, particularly when it comes to the situation of the migrant workers. By some Western European countries, you should say that, I think a vast majority of countries in the world, when we look into the entire global south, I don't think there has been much of a critical debate. So we're talking here about a Western European discourse. But also now, I think the British Prime Minister made a favorable tweet. Macron tweeted favorably. Secretary Blinken was here. So I think some Western leaders are trying now to more recognize achievements Qatar has made. Has it been at all possible to talk to ordinary Qataris, granted that there aren't many of them, about how they feel about this? Well, there are at least 380,000, according to the latest numbers. There are 2.94 million people in Qatar and 13%, 380,000 are Qatari. And I talk on a daily basis to them because they are my students. <laughs> and like everywhere in the world, you know, you have quite mixed views. You have, like in London 2012, you have some who say, oh my God, I'm leaving the city. I don't want to witness all these crowds. And you have others who are super excited for years. And the same applies to societal changes. Of course, some are positive and others are more skeptical. So I think the big mistake, I think, when looking at Qatar is to see it like as homogeneous. Of course, mm. there are mixed views like everywhere. Just finally, then, is there any sense, and granted that the World Cup is still going on, any sense at all that this will change Qatar in any meaningful way or change the way the world perceives it? Well, first of all, Qatar is changing since the mid-90s. Uh, it mm. established Al Jazeera in 1996. It established Qatar Airways, Qatar Foundation, Education City, where I teach. So we cannot link each change to the World Cup. But of course, mm. with the World Cup being awarded to Qatar in 2010, there was a lot of spotlight, particularly in the situation of the migrant workers in the country. What maybe was not always communicated to international audiences that the Kafala system is not a Qatar sink, it's a golf sink. Mm -hmm. And there are 29 to 35 million migrant workers in the Gulf, less than 10% of them in Qatar. But all the debate was focusing on Qatar. But it has certainly contributed, you know, the work of international human rights organizations, I think, has certainly contributed 
to the changes that have occurred here in the last two years and have improved the life of migrant workers from the minimum wage to the dismantling of the kafala system and the extension of the summer hours where outside work is not permitted. Dr. Daniel Reicher, thank you very much for joining us here on the Foreign Desk. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week with a special Christmas episode. And look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.